<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. Yeah! I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. Because it's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our week in entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week we're schlumping around in oversized clothes, mumbling like a teenage boy, delighted to discover that his voice has deepened. We're scooping <laughs> up buckets of gnarly pink soap suds and trying to find any possible outlandish scam or pilferage we can, rather than just get a damn job. Because our film this week is Kajillionaire, the latest from writer-director Miranda July, starring Evan Rachel Wood, Richard Jenkins, Deborah Winger, and Gina Rodriguez. Kajillionaire tells the story of a family of small-time, tiny-time crooks (laughs) doing the absolute most for the absolute least, just trying to get by scrap by scrap in L.A., Their odd little lives are shaken when, during one of their more inventive and elaborate scams, they meet a captivating stranger and invite her into their heist club. This film asks the question, Who wants to be a million... No, a kajillionaire! (laughs) Helen, first impression. For about the first 20 minutes, I was convinced Deborah Winger was Holly Hunter. Oh, totally, yes. totally. <laughs> that was very confusing. I even like went to the IMDb and it, it like said Deborah Winger. I was like, but no, she must be somebody else. <laughs> but that's not you. <laughs> yeah. Um, other than that, I was very intrigued by Evan Rachel Wood's weird interpretive dance, spy moves, and low register voice. <laughs> My first impression that is, is that this film opens with a very unique visual style already i feel like we're brought into this quirky world and uh evan rachel wood with that absurd long shaggy hair <laughs> and it's a family doing their version of a heist but it's like at a post office it's so small time it's hilarious but i do mm-hmm. like what i see so far first impressions for me the quirky absurdist tone of this film is already pulling me into a unique world only a miranda july film can provide oh yeah and what is that miranda july world sinclair why don't you tell us <laughs> Educate us, film Luddites. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, a little bit about Miranda July for those who aren't familiar with her or her films. Uh, She's a director who's been somewhat of an indie darling, especially in terms of film festivals like Sundance. So she's not just a director. She also acts, writes. She does one-woman shows. She's a musician. And she's known for being this very well-rounded artist in the film industry and she usually acts in her own films kajillionaire is the first feature she hasn't acted in um Mm. her first film was me and you and everyone we know in 2005 and then she did the future in 2011 and both are very much her own style of film so if you're going into kajillionaire not seeing any of her previous work you do catch on pretty fast that this is a filmmaker that definitely has their own style and unique world and characters that they create and you just kind of get thrown right into it off the bat 
Yeah, yeah. it's definitely <laughs> a distinctive voice and style. That mm-hmm. is for certain. So why don't we get right into the storytelling of Kajillionaire? Yeah, okay. So storytelling-wise, there are aspects of the storytelling that worked for me and aspects that did not work for me. What worked initially, the quirkiness, like we've been talking about. So yeah, this odd family living in an abandoned office space beside a soap factory that overflows foam down their walls at the same time every day. You know, we get that right off the bat, which (laughs) is so odd but I liked that I thought it was Mm -hmm. weird and interesting they identify more as three con people really than they identify as parents and a child Mm -hmm. and we find out you know it's very evident that old Dolio is and that is the name of Evan Rachel Wood's character (laughs) is seriously in need of real human connection yeah. So all of that, I was in. And then as soon as we get Gina Rodriguez's character, Melanie, from there, there was so much that didn't work for me. I don't want to go through the entire plot, but like from that point on, I had some issues. The thing that I appreciated about the storytelling in this is that they really focus on a very small story. Mm-hmm. This is whenever I think you're giving characters that are this absurd, if you try to paint it in broad strokes and tell some very large, elaborate story, it doesn't make sense. It gets lost. You have to focus on something very small, very specific, very simple. And I appreciated mm-hmm. that about this. There were definitely things about the storytelling that didn't work. I just mostly didn't really believe mm-hmm. like that any of these people exist. I don't know. It just felt quirky for quirky's sake for me in a way Mm -hmm. that didn't exactly land. That being said, there were also all kinds of things about it that I liked. Right. Sinclair, you and I watched this together last night. We did. It was nice to to see It was. It was so nice to actually watch a movie together. It was the first time watching a movie together since when? Yeah, I know. It was was a lovely time. What was the last movie that we watched together in person? I can't remember, truly. Yeah. Cats. Fuck. At the Royal. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I find characters in Miranda July films are people that don't generally fit into a box. They don't thrive functioning the way other people do in society. And I feel that's very reflective of, of her as an artist and a filmmaker. Her storytelling doesn't really adhere to a conventional structure. It's very offbeat. It's very on its own path. And I feel like this film is very unapologetic about that. And Mm -hmm. it's it's not trying to be a refined film. It's a bit messy and it's unconventional without everything having a very clear purpose or objective. Uh, So I understand in terms of it feeling a bit meandering, but she's known for being a performance artist and creating art on her own terms so I feel like the storytelling makes sense for her the comedy I feel comes from the main characters being absurd but the rest of the world is just normal I didn't believe that they would exist in this world that was my only real complaint with it and I didn't necessarily believe their actions especially after Gina Rodriguez comes in well so this is my issue with the storytelling as soon as we get Melanie who is Gina Rodriguez's character things just start to fall apart to me as an audience member trying to believe motivations. I do not believe Melanie would go along with these people. Mm-hmm. Hell no. Why would she? No. I don't believe she would be attracted to old Dolio. Sorry. But 
no, that character is way too weird. Like, there is not enough there for me to believe that there's an actual attraction or a romance that's budding. Yeah, that's kind of where the characters, like, actual motivations or how they exist in the world stop making sense for me. Because yeah. th- we w- didn't learn enough about her character to believe that she would get behind this. I can kind of get, like, I also found Old Dolio fascinating. And if I mm-hmm. met that person and they did exist i would be like okay yo what's your story and there were things in this film in the way that um she slowly revealed old dolio's pain and her isolation and loneliness mm-hmm. that i really loved i thought that the Me scene too. when she went to get the massage was actually mm-hmm. incredibly powerful yeah, and like i, I was sitting there too. with like clutching my chest with tears in my eyes it was really beautiful i did yeah. like the way the other characters in the film responded to this family and old Dolio uh, motivations aside, I did like the small moments in this film of the response to the absurdity. I, I like, what do you do with a character like that? Like I loved the woman at the birthing class. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I also love the massage scene, like you were saying, Edison. Like these are two professionals that they essentially have jobs in tenderness and connection and a safe mm-hmm. space and how they react and deal with old dolio it's sweet and comical but it does it has an element of feeling quite poignant as well i agree 100 percent, and that to me was the strongest part of this movie was watching old dolio have no experience with real human connection and then start to understand it and receive it from people and the way that those scenes were acted and played out. That was the best part of this movie. Mm-hmm. The other stuff was just, can someone please explain to me what the fuck that threesome scene was supposed to be? Yeah, well, I mean, there was this theme in this of contradicting morality with this family. And this family was incredibly dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. With their messaging to old Dolio, they essentially teach her to lie and steal, but make her feel shame about sexuality and showing her body or having any sexual feelings. Yet when Gina Rodriguez enters the picture, they turn into these icky predator types. It's yeah. it's interesting. That didn't work for me at all. Yeah. It felt, it felt like it was supposed to be in another movie. I just, if there was a part of me that was feeling like the Melanie character was out of place, that was what like was the nail in the coffin where I was like, this is so weird. And I, I just do not believe any of this. It felt like a letdown for her as well Mm. for Melanie. It's like Melanie was also trying to find something in these parents. And that moment was another moment of, oh, you're just one in the same, you know? But it's more than that. Like, that scene was really gross. And, like, it was predatory. Like, that was, like, a scary, dangerous, gross scene. And I just don't... It just really fucking took me out of the movie and made me feel really weird. Mm -hmm. And it was his line, too. He said... What were you expecting? Yeah, like, like as if obviously this is how that. this is gonna go. Well, and, yeah. Or are you really surprised? And she said, oh, "I've never been less surprised in my life." Yeah. Well, uh, you know, yeah. it's interesting when films have quirky tones, and then they have scenes that deal with really dark subject matter. Mm-hmm. You know, I did enjoy the familial themes in this, and the idea of dependency and attachment. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. these are parents who really don't want to be in another rat race who essentially just put themselves in a rat race in another form you know like this skimming life of petty crime they think that by detaching themselves from a capitalistic society that they can somehow do everything on their own terms 
there was a lot of first cow in this, I felt, like the idea of stealing yeah. from people with assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, this is different because this isn't really about survival in this case. It's a choice. They're choosing to take part in this skimming lifestyle. Like Edison and I turned to each other and we were like, oh, they could just get a job. Like they could make $1,500. Yeah. But it's this family who they want to be free they don't Mm -hmm. want dependency they want to live life on their own terms and this trickles down into how they raise their daughter like con artists don't get attached to anything because that leaves them vulnerable to being conned themselves i found the idea of a a kajillionaire interesting too like when robert played by richard jenkins says most people want to be kajillionaires that's the dream that's how they get you hooked hooked on sugar hooked on caffeine i just prefer to skim I found this worked in two ways. It worked in terms of being a con artist or a criminal. The more you want, the bigger the heist has to be. And the easier it becomes to be addicted to the gain. And the easier it is Mm -hmm. to get caught. So they just go through life just skimming, just under the Mm -hmm. surface. And I also thought it was about capitalism too. Everyone wants to be a kajillionaire. They want to get us hooked on their products. They want us to be addicted. They want us to buy, buy, buy. So that I found it, interesting. I mean, I feel like it touched on that, but it didn't actually explore that idea. Not in depth. And it, we didn't get any real reasoning for them so much, but more to the point. Okay, but they are still existing in the world. Mm-hmm. Like they right. are, they're still interacting in the world in a way that they might think is like a fuck you to the capitalism of it all. But it's still contributing. And mm-hmm. Well, if yeah, if you're taking the scraps of capitalism, you're still taking from capitalism well that's why i said it's like avoiding a rat race by forming your own rat race exactly yeah (laughs) yeah 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 i just wanted to mention one scene that i actually really liked in this film and that's when she thinks she's died (laughs) and she's she's talking to melanie and it's thoughts that are coming from someone who feels like they just missed life like they just Mm. missed experiencing life where she's saying, you've experienced life. Like, you've eaten pancakes. I've only had one pancake. And I laughed out loud, and Edison did not laugh at that moment at all. Yeah. But it was this... She was like, "You're. I won't miss my face. You're going to miss your pretty face because you look in <laughs> yeah. a mirror all the time. I won't yeah. miss mine. I'm, I'm like, not going to yeah. miss me, old Dolio. I've only ever had one pancake. <laughs> like, I kind of, like, just loved that. And No, I actually really like that moment as well. It's this person who has had a very specific type of brainwashing where she just fears mm-hmm. everything. She's mm-hmm. only been an outsider. She's never been fully immersed in life. She's been skimming the surface of her life. And I like that. Mm-hmm. She's never experienced anything real. And then she has that big moment. She comes out of that darkness and she's suddenly fascinated with everything. She's fascinated. Yeah. Yeah. with just paying for something in a convenience store yeah um i felt there was some real depth in that scene for sure yeah i thought that that scene was good as well um and but i think that the reason why that scene worked and why many of the scenes in this film worked is just comes down to the performances i don't think this movie mm-hmm. works at all unless you've got really capable actors mm-hmm. uh in these roles so let's talk about the performances and obviously we have to start with old olio uh, <laughs> rachel wood <laughs> Mm-hmm. I loved this performance as much as I had issues with the film. I could just watch a standalone old Dolio like short film and <laughs> be really fascinated with it. So much of her physicality I found mm-hmm. to be very admirable from an acting perspective. The way she walked, the way she let her hair fall on her face and we never really see her face. Her low voice, her really, really awkward dance moves and 
mm-hmm. s- you know, slinky moves <laughs> that she had, all of that, and being in that tracksuit. Like, there was just so much that informed that character that I thought that she did really fully. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood committed to this performance. Old Dolio, this, I will be <laughs> honest, this film will not say in my mind i will forget just, it like you say old dolio always makes me laugh like there's just I, but like her name is old dolio but old dolio the character will stay in my mind yes. i will remember yeah. that yeah, and it's totally. because she really really brought something fun to life we've also and, like, been calling things old dolio since we've seen the movie <laughs> well, i want to get I a dog an old dolio tattoo <laughs> What would old Dolio do? Yeah. I know, I can't. <laughs> yeah. But also, like, Evan Rachel Wood is stunningly gorgeous. I know. In, in real life, like, breathtakingly so. And Totally. And so and bold. I, and, yo, absolutely. Yeah. And so to see her completely disappear into this mm. character. There was the one point when... Um, Gina Rodriguez, when they're on their way out to dinner, and I said, Oh, God, Sinclair, is this a she's all that makeover moment? Oh, my and, God, I know. <laughs> thankfully, it wasn't. It was like a pseudo one, the, but there were some yeah. Yor- Yorgos Lanthimos moments in this film. Mm-hmm. I feel like some of those mm-hmm. awkward moments that just reminded me of Killing of a Sacred Deer and just Dog Tooth. And mm-hmm. it's that yeah. absurdist, those absurdist moments. I really appreciated Evan Rachel Wood in this because it was so different from anything I've mm-hmm. ever seen her, seen her in. She was so bold and striking, and this is really different for her. Mm-hmm. And uh, Miranda July has talked about the character of Old Dolio, and she says the idea of Old Dolio is she's a full soul in there, but intellectually her output valve is pretty small. So mm-hmm. it's this character who has so much going on inside, but is so socially inept and has been deprived of any sort of authentic interaction or connection that everything just stays bottled up so tight. And I think what really makes this such an accomplishment in a performance for Evan Rachel Wood is because this is a character, right? This is a full-on, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. could have very easily slid into being a caricature. But there's a lot of close-ups on her face. And you can see her eyes. And there is a real person there. And there's mm-hmm. a lot going on. And that mm-hmm. leaned back uh, move she did with walking by the fence oh, as if you burst out laughing. <laughs> I was screaming. I'm sorry. It's I was like, screaming. That was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Why wouldn't you hunch forward? Like, why is she hunching backward? <laughs> like, she just, like, she probably just... doesn't even know that that's odd, though. I know. You know? Uh, yeah. And I mean, really. Gina Rodriguez ended up being this perfect counterbalance old Dolio. Mm-hmm. She's completely open, this character of Melanie. She's comfortable with being so feminine and free with her body. And Edison and I were like, I bet Gina Rodriguez smells amazing. Smells amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I she... bet she smells fucking amazing. <laughs> old Dolio, not so much. Not so Gina much. Rodriguez, oh, like actual heaven. Yeah. <laughs> She has this very free, charming style of acting where she's just so attuned moment to moment. And her reactions are never stale. She's just so fresh every moment in this movie and playful. Yeah. I loved Gina Rodriguez in this movie. I didn't believe her character motivations, but I loved her Mm -hmm. performance. I agree Um, completely. I really, really did. She was so charming. She has such a sparkle. I just like to watch her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And um, she's really cool. Like, if you think about the difference between this character, who's so, like, soft and warm and sensual. vibrant and bold and sensual, mm-hmm. compared to her character in Annihilation. Like, yeah. these are wildly different performances. And I just like yeah. to see that versatility in her, too. Yeah. Richard Jenkins was great, too. I love... Yeah, he's always good. Yeah, he has this cynical, dry, comedic timing that's combined with this bit of frantic eccentricity. Mm-hmm. It's really something that is very much his own <laughs> style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, how about some technical elements mm-hmm. of Kajillionaire? So for me, the thing that stood out the most was the score. Even in the very, very, very first second, like that first introduction where they're waiting outside the post office, you get this really cool score. It's interesting because it feels a bit more grand than the film Mm. and larger Mm -hmm. than the story and orchestral at times. But I don't know. I liked it. It took me into a different place. It was composed by Emily Mossery. And it was a real highlight for me. I loved it. Yeah, I liked it as well. Well, it's interesting you say the grand comment, Edison, because I bet you that's how those characters felt in their minds, right? Like they were doing something so grand. Yeah, to me, the score, it was whimsical and haunting at the same time, Mm -hmm. it felt like. Like it was playful, but also had these like male voices underneath it that creeped me out a little bit. Um, Yeah, I I also really enjoyed the score. And going back to the scene that uh, you already mentioned, Sinclair, where they come out of the bathroom and (laughs) Old Dolio thought that she died and she didn't. Mm -hmm. That entire scene is a tracking shot. Mm. going from the bathroom into the gas station, picking up all of the items, putting them on the counter, going around, coming back, leaving. Like that entire tracking shot I thought was incredibly impressive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially I didn't clock that while watching it. Yeah, Yeah, this film was very simplistic in terms of technical elements, I found, or at least seemed that way. There was nothing really flashy Mm. about it. There were a couple pops of color here and there, but the visual style definitely reflected the tone of the film and the humor of the film I felt it mm. I felt that it worked I loved the pink bubbles <laughs> coming from the me walls too. me too that was a very distinct and effective visual for me yeah the idea of well first of all yeah the bubble factory is completely <laughs> ab- absurd the idea of a bubble factory is just it's well, so soap factory it's, it's not so a bubble factory. The, but it's a, it ca- it's called the bubble factory no, it's like it's, the name it's of the a building soap factory there's a sign in the film that says the bubble factory oh okay, I, well. I, rem- I remember saying to edison oh my god it says the bubble factory yeah but it's just pretty sure a, it's a soap factory i don't think there's a factory that just makes bubbles of course well, is it's the that, stuff that you sell what do you buy in the little jars that you blow soap. bubbles out of it's soap no it's I know, the chemical that causes lather factory. it's a chemical okay. that All causes right. lather uh, either way <laughs> either way it's completely ludicrous but yeah i actually felt like it worked in this context it was so perfect to represent mm-hmm. how sterile and industrial old dolio's home was mm. growing up and that they're in like an ugly hideous carved yeah. out basement section of There's an office nothing cozy about her environment she's sleeping on the floor I mean, it's not a home. <laughs> in this abandoned office space and the only color these bubbles coming through the walls every day her like her life is literally and metaphorically in a bubble <laughs> like i love that yeah, <laughs> yeah. well yeah. And, and just that image of them scooping yeah. the bubbles with the garbage cans like that is never an image you could possibly conceive in your own brain mm-hmm. it's just too weird it's too strange <laughs> it's just too strange. <laughs> it yeah. is 
Um, okay, so what's the last word on Kajillionaire? Last word for me, this is the first I'm seeing of Miranda July's work, and although it wasn't a home run for me, I am intrigued. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Last word for me is that this is a real quirky, quirky film. Um, it definitely is not going to be for everyone. But even though a lot of it didn't make sense for me, I still did enjoy it overall. Mm. And uh, yeah, I especially for old Dolio, whom I will never forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last word for me. I also don't feel like this film is for everyone. It's a really great example of an oddball film. It doesn't always work, but it has charm and it's unique and it has its own vision. So overall, I think it's a good watch. Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. This week's theme is Mo Money, Mo Problems. This is our week in entertainment. Helen, what did you pick? Okay. I'm really curious. I don't know what any of y'all picked. My film is from 1992. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So is mine. I know. It's not the same. Oh. I wanted to just see you freak out for a second. (laughs) <laughs> um, so my my film is from 1992. It is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <gasps> oh, yes. okay, yeah. Directed by James Foley, based off of the play by David Mamet, starring Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alan Arkin, Ed Harris, Kevin Spacey, and a short but memorable performance by Alec Baldwin. Mm-hmm. So David Mamet adapted his own stage play to the screen about... The salesmen who work at the real estate agency Premier Properties and how they'll do anything to make a sale. This is a well-known and well-liked film and play that is heavily quoted, especially the motto, always be closing. Mm -hmm. And this is one that I've been wanting to watch for a really long time. And it recently became available on Canopy, which Mm -hmm. is the streaming service through the public library. I saw that come up a while ago, maybe a month ago. And then when we decided to do this theme for Owie, I thought, oh, this is a perfect opportunity mm-hmm. to watch Glengarry mm-hmm. Glenn Ross. Truthfully, I was somewhat underwhelmed by Glengarry Glenn Ross. Mm. To me, it kind of just felt like a smarmier death of a salesman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do have to say, I saw Death of a Salesman on Broadway with Philip Seymour Hoffman in 2012. Oh, wow. And, and I have And such, Andrew Garfield, right? Yeah. Ooh. Yes. That was such an experience that, you know, to watch this and have that in my memory was you know, kind of impossible to live up to. <laughs> Probably my favorite thing about this was actually watching Jack Lemon, who... Yeah, he's so oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, and I I have to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of his films. I haven't seen a lot of those older movies. I haven't seen some like It Hot, The Apartment, any of those. And so to watch him and know he's somewhat of an acting legend mm-hmm. was pretty fascinating. And his performance is really great in this movie. His desperation and persistence is really hard to watch in the same way that you feel about the main character in Death of a Salesman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This movie, however, you know, Death of a Salesman is incredibly tragic and depressing, but it has some heart to it. And Glengarry Glenn Ross doesn't really have that heart. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it wasn't really resonating with me. It's very unforgiving and it's just very masculine. Mm -hmm. And which I expected it to be, but I was having a hard time relating to it. To be um, honest, I've never seen this movie because I've never okay. because I've never wanted to. That, yeah, that's actually I mean, it. I've just never wanted to watch it <laughs> like, because of those reasons. Like that's the vibe yeah. I actually have always got from it. 
Mm-hmm. There is some some great acting in it, and it is cool to see these actors doing the mammoth language. But it, yeah, it just feels. It, I I was stressed <laughs> the whole time, and I think this is the first time that I've watched Kevin Spacey in anything since the sexual assault allegations. So that was also on my mind while right, I was watching this. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, kind of an underwhelming experience for a film that I've been wanting to see for a long time that I've heard a lot about, but I am glad that I watched it. And not that I've ever wanted to go into sales, really, but this really didn't make me want to go into Ugh, sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just looked really, really stressful. Mm-hmm. It's like the most bleak perspective on sales. It's just mm-hmm. the worst that it could possibly be. You know what I mean? Well, it is like making fun of of that world. Of too, course, yeah, for sure, for sure. The uh, it, yeah. one of the most fa- it's. I feel like this film is also really famous because of that monologue from Alec Baldwin. Right? Yes, right, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that is what most people think about when they think of this movie. And even Justin, who has not seen a lot of movies, he worked in sales for a while, and he knew the always be closing, and he knew the coffee is for closers mm-hmm. phrases from this movie. He's like. Because guys in the office used to say it all the time. They thought it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Um, So that has definitely lived on. And Alec Baldwin's character was written just for the movie. That character is not in the play. Oh, interesting. Fun fact. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What about you, Edison? Okay, well, my film is also from 1992, as Mm -hmm. we just said. (laughs) And mine is Reservoir Dogs, written and directed Mm -hmm. by Quentin Tarantino. And starring Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Steve Buscemi... Michael Madsen, and Chris Penn. Uh, Reservoir Dog fits the theme of Mo Money, Mo Problems because this is a film about a heist gone wrong. So a group of tough guys come together for a big score. It's a diamond heist. But when it goes wrong and they start to gather back at their hideout, it becomes clear that one of the guys is an undercover cop who set them up. In typical Tarantino style, this isn't exactly resolved in a diplomatic fashion. (laughs) Have you both seen this? Edison. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I hadn't actually. I think I always what? thought that what I is? had. I w- I was confusing it for the Boondock Saints, even though these are wildly oh. different films. Wow. And I. <sighs> okay. Uh, in, and in fact, when I started to watch it, like a few nights ago, when I did, I was like, okay, waiting for the moment to click in for me to remember, like, oh, this mm. is familiar, and I was like. I don't think I've seen this. It's so oh, wow, weird. that's interesting. Yeah. So this movie is a big deal because it's Tarantino's feature film debut. He had done an amateur film called My Best Friend's Birthday in 1987, but it was never, ever properly released. It was a tiny, tiny little film. It was also only 70 minutes long. And actually, the film itself was damaged in a fire. So it was edited down to 36 minutes. You can watch it on YouTube if you wanted to. But anyways, yeah, so Reservoir Dogs is Quentin Tarantino's debut. And holy shit, what a first impression to make in Hollywood. This is a movie that has such an original style and voice that it has to be one of the most impressive debuts in cinematic history. Hmm. You can also listen to this conversation on our 90s episode. (laughs) Really? Um, yep. Director of the Decade, Quentin Tarantino's. I don't think we (laughs) talked about Reservoir Dogs that much, though. Okay, well, if I don't remember, and Helen also doesn't remember, probably our listeners also don't remember. Yeah. Just because you can remember every single thing (laughs) that was ever said in the episode, I guarantee 
the people who are listening <laughs> don't. So I'm just going to continue on if that's okay. Okay. <laughs> There's an infusion of, infusion of pop culture references in this that's become the like Tarantino's signature, or one of his signatures. I mean, like, can you please try and think of another gangster movie that opens up with a group of tough guys sitting around a table debating the lyrical meaning of a Madonna song, Like a Virgin? <laughs> <laughs> like, Tarantino acts in this too. Uh, he plays Mr. Brown. All the co- characters have these colors for names, mm-hmm. so nobody knows each other's identities. And he says, let me tell you what Like a Virgin is about. It's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. The entire song, it's a metaphor for big dicks. And then Michael Madsen says, no, no, it's about a girl who's very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times and she meets some guy who's really sensitive. And then they go back and forth for like three minutes talking about Mm -hmm. that song and about True Blue and about Madonna in general. And I was like, what the fuck is happening right now? Then they Mm -hmm. argue about tipping for like another few minutes. This is before the title sequence. And I just think it's such a like brazen way to open your very first feature film. Well, now I'm thinking about Madonna like a virgin. I think it's like she's not a virgin. This man just makes her feel like she's being touched for the very first time. Right. This is the whole debate. And one, of, one of them is saying like, yeah, because she met this guy with a huge dick who's like a yeah. champion fucker. And she's like, oh, my God, I haven't felt like this in ages. Yeah. <laughs> what? Anyway, yeah, I just think that it like speaks to Tarantino's confidence as a filmmaker, even at the very start of his career, that he would mm. open his debut film with something just so out of the norm. And that confidence continues in the way that this movie is structured. Typically, you know, this type of a movie, you you do like they do in the Oceans movie or even like Mission Impossible or Armageddon, for example, where basically the entire first act is just like rounding up the team, introducing Mm -hmm. us to the characters and their world. Then we'd spend some time outlining the plan for the heist and the groundwork. And eventually we'd get to the action itself and see whether our team triumphs or not. That's not how this one goes. So like right after that table debate about Madonna, we get the title sequence and then instantly we're in the backseat of a car with Tim Roth bleeding out onto Harvey Keitel's lap. The heist has gone wrong and he's been shot in the guts and is dying. Mm. They manage to escape and get back to the hideout. And that's where the story begins. So it's like a total inversion of the normal way to approach a heist film. And the rest of it is done through sort of flashbacks that are really seamless and so well done. Mm. I love this movie so fucking much. The performances from all these guys are obviously just brilliant. Standouts for me, Harvey Keitel as Mr. White. He's the one who's been like around the block, but lately he's been cursed. And Michael Madsen, who plays Mr. Blonde and is the psychopath in the group, but he plays Mm -hmm. it with this like incredibly calm, even-tempered coolness. And he looks kind of like Elvis. Um, He's like handsome and charming. It's terrifying. It's a terrifying performance because it's so quiet that it like brings you in. But he's a sick as fuck character. So you do not want to be brought in. But yeah, it's just freaking fantastic all around. I can't believe that I hadn't seen it. Even though I've spent, you know, 25 (laughs) years thinking that I had, I guess. Mm -hmm. If anyone is listening hasn't seen it or if they were confused about whether they'd seen it like me, uh, (laughs) you can rent it for a buck 99 off a prime video. It is the I film think that's that on introduced. Netflix, is it not? Yeah. No, it's on Netflix. Yeah. I'm sure it's oh on something. Oh my right. god. I rented it for two dollars off a of Pride video. Oh well, it was worth it. I mean two bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, this is a film that introduced Hollywood to one of its most celebrated directors of the past thirty years, which we talk about all a lot <laughs> in our nineties episode, uh, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> 
<laughs> what did you pick, Sinclair? Uh, oh my god! Fuck. Well, we have a '90s theme going on. Mm-hmm. Mine's from 1996. I mean, to be fair, "Mo Money, Mo Problems" is also a '90s yeah. song, so let's we might as well. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I believe it's from 1996. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, this film's called Hard Eight, and it's directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, and it stars Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, and Gwyneth Paltrow. So this is a Paul Thomas Anderson film that I had no idea existed. I actually yeah, thought, I never did you heard of this. this? Up? What? I actually <laughs> thought that Boogie Nights was his first film, and I was very mistaken. Hard Eight is his first film. Huh. This is Paul Thomas Anderson's least known film. Yeah, yeah, truly. I've never, I thought ever I had, heard of it. Yeah. So this is his first feature right before Boogie Nights. Quick synopsis via IMDb. Professional gambler Sidney teaches John the tricks of the trade. John does well until he falls for a cocktail waitress named Clementine. <laughs> so Sidney is played by Philip Baker Hall. You guys can just Google him right now because you're going to go, oh, yeah, that guy. Mm-hmm. I recognize the name. I know, but I guarantee you guys can't picture him in your heads right now. <laughs> no, I've he's got, like one I've of got those him. actors. I absolutely, rec- I absolutely recognize him. He's been in a hundred yeah. things. Yeah, he's and that he's that guy. Yeah, he is that guy, and he's in a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson films. He's in Argo. Yeah, he's in like everything. Mm-hmm. So he plays Sydney, and he befriends John, played by John C. Riley, who is sitting outside a diner, looking very forlorn. And the two end up having coffee and talking. And John says he needs $6,000 to pay for his mother's funeral. Hmm. Whether that's true or not was really up in the air for me. I thought Hmm. that, you know, maybe he does need it for her funeral, but also they're in a diner just outside of Reno. So he could have also just lost (laughs) it as well. Mm -hmm. True. So Sydney says he doesn't have $6,000, but will take him to Reno and show him how to work the casinos. Hmm. So essentially teaching him how he can get his money. Huh. Yeah. So John becomes a bit of his protege. Sydney's helping him, but we don't really know why. He's very mysterious. We hmm. don't really know anything about his past. And John ends up becoming entangled with a waitress who is also a prostitute. And this is played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who, by the way, I think this is one of her best performances. Huh. She's so so good in this movie. She's playing a prostitute and a waitress. And her public image and her performances are so far removed from anything like that world. You know what I mean? Right. But (laughs) she is great in Heart Hate. Truly. Ah. It was so surprising. I was like, man, Gwyneth Paltrow's acting was great in the 90s. Like, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This wasn't a huge film. So not mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about Gwyneth Paltrow in, in Heart 8. But money in this film is connected to trouble. And mm-hmm. as much as Sydney is helping John, it's still leading him into this life of gambling. And he's not necessarily someone who makes the best decisions. Clementine is constantly trying to support herself by doing things that essentially put her into danger. And what happens is they end up in a hotel room, her and John, with one of her clients. And they accidentally hold this client hostage when he doesn't pay her $300 for her services mm. Sydney gets involved and so the story goes mm. Samuel L. Jackson's also in this 
And he's someone who tries to blackmail Sydney, and this leads to trouble for him. And something I found interesting was how they connected dollar amounts in this film. They were very reflective of each other. So John, at the beginning, needs $6,000. Then Samuel L. Jackson tries to blackmail Sydney for $6,000. John wins $300 on his first night of gambling. And then Gwyneth Paltrow is fighting for the $300 that she's owed. So there's like this cool connection. This the, There's a cool numerical connection in this film. This film was... Math ba- wizards. <laughs> so Hardy was actually based off a short film called Cigarettes and Coffee that Paul Thomas Anderson made and submitted to the Sundance Film Festival. And I've heard of this. Where, yeah, that's what got Paul Thomas Anderson approached by producers to essentially make this short film. And the short has Philip Baker Hall in it. And he went on to be in the feature film. But the short also has the actor who played the cop who gets his ear cut off in Reservoir Dogs. Oh. Oh, So neat little connection there. Yeah. When they did the feature film, there were all these uh, disputes over the final cut with producers. And Paul Thomas Mm. Anderson was actually fired from this film. He was fired from his own film. And then he eventually got his film back. And he did this by finishing it on his own terms with his own money Hmm. and then taking it to Cannes. Yeah. So he talks about being very precious with his work at the time and not realizing how a lot of the job is actually catering to the people that are providing the money. Mm. for your film so mo money mo problems when making this mm. film <laughs> as well mm, meta. yeah but yeah hard eight i had never seen this before i watched it on prime video if, if anyone's <gasps> interested yeah. and yeah i know people that love pta are going to come after me and be like how did you not know that hard eight <laughs> existed <laughs> but now i do and i watched it so yeah So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week, we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we explore a career that blossomed thanks to some school ties and some good old-fashioned forces of nature. This chin-dimpled charmer went from supporting parts to leading man status so quickly, we don't envy the accountant who had to tally up all those million-dollar paychecks. (laughs) But don't be fooled by the role that he got because he's still Benny from the block and we're sure he still looks back on that dazed and confused Oscar speech fondly. (laughs) Though he has a reputation of liking to live by night and hit the town for some strip clubs, smoking aces, and some good pill hunting, the public doesn't seem to Pearl Harbor any bad feelings towards this movie star for always going (laughs) all the way. Whether he's dating a pop star, a co-star, or a nice Jersey girl, this heartthrob makes the ladies want him to either put a ring on it or straight up bounce. So let's get gone, girl, because it's time to put the career of Ben Affleck in focus. Yes. <laughs> One day I want to just make like an entire like episode just of your introductions. <laughs> So we had to decide on Ben Affleck's defining moments and movies, and we had to come to an agreement on the film that put his career on the map. 
And that film is Goodwill Hunting from 1997, directed by Gus Van Sant, starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Robin Williams, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. Matt Damon plays Will Hunting, who is a janitor at MIT, who is incredibly gifted in the field of mathematics, but ends up needing help from a psychologist played by Robin Williams to help him find guidance and direction in his life. So, yes, this movie put <laughs> Ben Affleck and Matt Damon on the map, both of them, and essentially launched them to stardom. And. Mm-hmm. This is such a great Hollywood success story that everyone was obsessed with because this was a true bromance. These two had been (laughs) friends since they were eight. They both had dreams of becoming Hollywood actors and they basically helped each other get there. Mm -hmm. Matt Damon wrote this script at Harvard University and he moved to L.A. where Ben Affleck was already acting in things. They were just smaller roles and he slept on Ben Affleck's couch and they worked on the screenplay and they shipped it around while also trying to get acting parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ben Affleck had done some notable movies already. He'd done Days and Confused in Mallrats, which led to a relationship with Kevin Smith, who mm-hmm. put him in Chasing Amy, which then led Ben Affleck and Matt Damon to meet Gus Van Sant, who essentially became the director of this film. And mm-hmm. it's really icky to say, but that also yeah. led to Harvey Weinstein and Miramax mm-hmm. giving these two a break Yeah, into show business. Yeah. It's actually really interesting. I think people really believed almost that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were these characters. They weren't. Mm-hmm. They grew up in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. They did grow up mm-hmm. together, but they grew up in like a fairly well-off situation, you know? Like you said, Matt Damon yeah. was going to Harvard. When he wrote yeah. this, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, they weren't Will and Chucky from Southie. But they knew that world, and yeah. they played it extremely well. And Ben Affleck is really, really great in this film. That bit, you know, where he gives a speech to Will and he says... You know, Mm. I would kill to have what you have. So would all these guys. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to blink and wake up 50 years from now and still be doing this, basically. Like, you're insulting all of us for not if you don't. He's Mm -hmm. really good. Like, you really believe him as this character. It kind of tapped into and hit the, like, Ben Affleck archetype right off the bat. There's elements of this guy that is just him. Yeah, I mean... I do enjoy that speech. I did find Ben to be pretty douchey in this movie, though. <laughs> um, and He's maybe totally that's, douchey. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's partly colored by my impression of him now in 2020 over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, also his early career, too. He essentially p- plays a bully in everything that he yeah. did before Goodwill Hunting, with the exception of Chasing Amy. Kevin Smith basically gave him a break with chasing Amy because Mm. he was being typecast as, Mm. and he's quoted this saying someone who pushes people into lockers, like dazed (laughs) and confused mall rats. He's a bully and and a douche (laughs) in all these films. So this was leaning slightly more towards like a sentimental Ben Affleck that he needed that push in his career. He needed Mm -hmm. to be seen a little bit more in that light. Mm-hmm. But I think there's part of his personality that is captured in this. You know what I mean? And that's part yeah. of what mm-hmm. makes him a star is that we can see it. But it's not just that. 
he is maybe mm. that character, but he also has this other side, right? For um, sure, 100%. But this was huge. And then, yes, of course, this is where Ben Affleck won an Oscar for sc- uh, screenwriting. And actually, mm. it's funny that you mentioned Jack Lemmon earlier because it was Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau who presented them the Oscars. Mm-hmm. The oh, I Oscar. didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So that was actually really cool. And it was a wonderful speech. They get up and they're obviously very, very nervous. And they thank everybody. They thank their mothers, who were their guests, which mm. is, is, of course, perfect for the whole story of it all. Yeah. They thank the city of Boston, <laughs> which perfect. Yeah. But yeah, everyone really, really loved the story. And I think forever, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck will be best friends as far as the media narrative goes. And this film was huge. It was a, on a budget of $10 million. It made $225 million at the box office. Wow. It was nominated for nine Oscars. It won Best Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor, uh, Robin Williams. But this was the Titanic year, so it really had no choice at the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Edison, why don't you start us off with number one on our big three for Ben Affleck. The year after Goodwill Hunting comes out, uh, and makes Ben Affleck a star. He's in this tiny little film called Armageddon. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so this is the film that puts his face on posters in every teenage girl's room across North America. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. takes him into the stratosphere as like a Not movie Helen. star. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, but that's because Helen was six. Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> True. <laughs> Directed by uh, Michael Bay, Armageddon uh, is the story of a giant asteroid the size of Texas about to collide with the Earth in less than a month. They have to send up Harry Stamper, played by Bruce Willis, and his team of oil drillers to drill into the asteroid team. and, you know, <laughs> blow it up. Man, Liv Tyler plays it. Grace, <laughs> his daughter, and she's absolutely perfect. And Ben Affleck plays AJ, who's sort of Harry's protege, but also Grace's secret boyfriend, um, which Bruce Willis Mm. does not approve of. There's Mm -hmm. this very 90s dad scene that Bruce Willis is perfect for where he chases AJ all around the oil rig trying to literally shoot him after he walks in on him in Grace's bed. Honestly, this is the most 90s movie ever. It's ridiculous, Um, truly. Truly. It is. But like in a fun way, for sure. I I remember seeing this when it came out and just really loving the experience of watching this. And also, I loved the soundtrack. (laughs) Oh, my God. Of course. Aerosmith. And leave it on a jet plane. Like, this is, I feel like this is Michael Bay's best movie or or certainly one of them. It's one of them. Yeah. And I mean, that's not saying much, but... Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, to be in a Michael Bay movie, obviously this made Ben Affleck a sex symbol, too. Mm -hmm. And he Mm -hmm. had to lose weight, (laughs) get fit, get tanned, and he also had to get his teeth capped. Oh, my God. Well, you know what? Good. I'm glad it's not just women that have to lose weight and get all perfect. But isn't this absolutely hilarious? He had to lose weight, get fit, get tanned, and get his teeth capped capped. to play an oil rig (laughs) driller. So they say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. My favorite thing about... That's what, like, the earth is depending on, these guys to go up. (laughs) It's like, yes, you are the guys. You are going to save the world. Honestly, Mm. this movie is still fun. If you like a summer (laughs) blockbuster, this is fun in the way that Independence Day is fun. It's Mm -hmm. just a fun summer movie but it's massive it made half a billion dollars at the box office and like really took ben affleck's career to the next level yeah 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's uh, what's number two on the big three? All right, number two. We're going all the way to 2012 with Argo. Snooze. Uh, <laughs> I haven't even. I barely started talking about it. Oh, sorry. What? I'm asleep already. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Argo was directed by Ben Affleck, and it also stars Ben Affleck. Here's a description, courtesy of IMDb. Acting under the cover of a Hollywood producer scouting a location for a science fiction film, a CIA agent launches a dangerous operation to rescue six Americans in Tehran during the U.S. hostage crisis in Iran in 1979. This film won three Oscars. Best adapted screenplay, best editing, and best fucking picture. Yeah, Yeah, it was very strange. A very strange win. Okay, I had seen this movie when it came out. I rewatched it last night, and this is such a mediocre movie. Yeah, it's a complete (laughs) non-event. I mean, like it's good, it's fine, but is it the best picture winner? No, absolutely, it's not. And there was a lot of controversy surrounding this movie because of the facts that they change in it and the way that they Hollywoodize the ending. Like they have Mm. literal cop cars chasing after a plane on a runway that's about to take off. That did not happen in real life. It's not common that especially a movie that wins best picture that the director isn't even nominated for best director. And that was the case here. Yeah. And that's why that's what the whole conversation was about Mm. was leading up to the Oscars. The whole conversation was about, his snub as best director. Right. And that's arguably why the members to vote this as the best picture winner to acknowledge Ben Affleck's snub. Because you have to remember, this was a major comeback for Ben Affleck. Yes. He had he had just had several years after mm-hmm. Geely. You know, he had <laughs> spent the better part of a decade, really, like with mm-hmm. his career in a major down slump. And this was a big comeback. Yeah. What I will say about Ben I actually think his acting is really good in this film. And I mean, I texted you like guys last night. I was all about that look, that longer hair and that beard. Mm. I like yeah, that. And I don't find that. Ben Affleck that attractive, but I was like, I'm into this look. All right, I'll, I'll go for that. Yeah. Sinclair, what is number three on the big three? Number three is Gone Girl uh-huh. from 2014, directed by David Fincher who has not done a movie since Gone Girl. So Mank is coming out. Like, let's, yes, let's go, Mank. Very I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. This is based off the novel by Gillian Flynn, and the screenplay is written by Gillian Flynn. stars Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. Quick synopsis via IMDb. With his wife's disappearance having become the focus of an intense media circus, a man sees the spotlight turned on him when it's suspected that he may not be innocent. Mm-hmm. This was a really big film for Ben Affleck. It this is actually David Fincher's highest grossing film. Oh wow. Yeah. It was massive. It grossed nearly three hundred and seventy million dollars on a budget of sixty one million. So yeah. it made a lot of money. This was I remember this in twenty fourteen. This was a yeah. big deal. Everybody wanted to see this movie. I yeah. loved seeing this movie in theaters too. Me too. Mm-hmm. But Nick Dunn is a complex role because yeah. both him and Amy are in the wrong <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. And yeah. you have to be able to love and hate them both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Ben Affleck has this apathy to him in this film that makes you not trust him, but mm-hmm. it's vague enough to believe him as well. So in terms of casting Ben Affleck in this role, David Fincher has 
explained why Ben Affleck was the right choice for this. And I can see it. Um, He has a quote. You cast movies based on critical scenes. In Gone Girl, there's a smile the guy has to give when Mm. the local press asks him to stand next to a poster of his missing wife. I flipped through Google Images and found about 50 shots of Ben Affleck giving that kind of smile in public (laughs) situations. You look at them and know he's trying to make people comfortable in the moment, but by doing that, he's making himself vulnerable to people having other perceptions about him. So Ben Affleck is somebody who, at this point in his career, especially, we've seen him have a down slump, and so, but he's still been famous and like loved. So you want to root for him, Um, Mm -hmm. but he does have this quality where you're just not sure, right? If you should trust him or not. Yeah, yeah, and. David Fincher also talks about how Ben Affleck is perfect for this because he has had a history with media scrutiny and Mm. he comes into these roles with the baggage of someone who's been in the public eye and has been poked and prodded at and questioned and scrutinized. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that that mirror his real life. This is such an interesting watch in 2020. Mm. I watched this through a new lens that I didn't quite see in 2014 yeah the messaging in this film is very confusing like it is it's a revenge story of a woman who gets revenge on men by faking rape murdering and also like man trapping her spouse by getting pregnant like it's all these female stereotypes that women are trying to get away from and also a lot of abuses that women are hoping are never questioned (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. So it's, it's it's so strange though too because the film also hates on stereotypes like the cool girl and all mm-hmm. these female expectations that we're supposed to live up to. There, there's a lot of divisive opinions about this film that I totally get watching it the second time around. Is this feminist? Is it misogynist? It's really interesting. Is it both? Can it be both? Yeah. 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 But in terms of Ben Affleck. A lot of parallels here between the role of mm-hmm. Nick and Ben Affleck in real life, just, well, without the murder, of course. And that we know of. That boom, we know boom, of. Boom. Okay, Edison, what is Ben's pop culture moment? Well, Ben Affleck is an interesting one because, you know, he's been a movie star for like 25 years now. And even just over the course of this discussion, we've touched on several moments that could be considered his big pop culture ones, right? Like... The beginning, the whole Ben and Matt Damon best friends bit. Then, yeah, his struggles with substance abuse and gambling, his marriage to Jennifer Garner. But really, the absolute most white hot zenith of his pop culture dominance was simply one word. Benifer. In the early 2000s, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez fell in love. And they gave us the world's very first couple named Portmanteau. That then we would see from from everybody from Brangelina thereafter, mm-hmm. you know, it just keeps keeps going all the time. We're doing it now, but Benefer was first. This was really interesting because Jennifer Lopez, a huge, 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 huge star, of course, at the peak of her fame in in film and music, and Ben Affleck. It's the early two thousands. He's also huge right now, but it just didn't work. Mm-mm. And yeah. I think. It just didn't feel right. It felt like Jennifer Lopez is megawatt in her stardom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ben Affleck is actually just kind of schlumpy. And <laughs> and he tried to, like, glam it up, you know? Like, yeah. But it just didn't feel authentic at all. 
And there was something like desperate about it almost. And you could see it. It was captured so perfectly in that photo on the Oscars red carpet, right? When they like go into kiss or whatever, but his eyes are looking out at the cameras. And yeah, that photo was shown (laughs) over and over and over and over and over again. And it got exactly that reaction. Or the photo where they're in his Bentley convertible looking at tabloid photos of themselves. Yes. (laughs) You remember that? Yes. And like him on in her Jenny from the Block music video, you know, on the yacht, like applying sunscreen to the most famous derriere in the world, hers. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It just was like a a type of high glam luxury lifestyle that works for J-Lo. That is the Mm -hmm. J-Lo brand but is completely non-synchronous to the Ben Affleck brand. And it did not work for him. Then they did have, you know, the spectacular disaster of Geely together. That that was the nail in the coffin for Ben Affleck. And honestly, this was the beginning of the end, like of a full decade, pretty much, of his career in like a schlump. Now, again, you know, we've talked about it time and time again. J-Lo just wears none of this. She's like the most unflappable (laughs) celebrity ever, honestly. She... Took the heat for exactly none of this. She was just like, eh, I have 8,000 other projects on the go. I'm still just going to keep doing me. Uh, but Ben Affleck, yeah. I know. I know. But yes, Benifer, that is definitely Ben Affleck's pop culture moment. 100%. All right, Sinclair, what is a hidden gem on uh, Ben Affleck's <laughs> filmography? Okay, I'm going to take you guys back to me in grade school <laughs> in... 1997, watching a PBS educational program called The Voyage of the Mimi from 1984. And it's about a boy who goes to help his grandfather out on this ship called the Mimi. And this boy is named C.T. Granville. He's eight years old and he's played by Ben Affleck. Oh, what? Oh, my God. (laughs) Because Ben Affleck was a child actor in case you didn't know wow and his first major role was this educational program that we had to watch in grade seven and write reports about it that is hilarious yeah so i was like where the fuck am i gonna find the voyage of the mimi so i found it on youtube wow perfect amazing And each episode has a different topic. It's about 30 minutes long, and half of the episode is the actual fictional adventure that they go on on the ship that day. And then the other half of the episode is them actually as the actor. So Ben Affleck, as Ben Affleck, going and exploring these different topics for real, in real life. So he's just like, hi, I'm Ben Affleck. I am C.T. Granville, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about whales. <laughs> what? This is so weird. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about scuba diving today, and then he takes you on an adventure. It's like the best job a kid could have. He, yes. Oh, my he God, imagine. Yeah, he got to shoot all over. There's even a season where I guess he went to Mexico as well, and he's only Whoa. eight years old in this, and he is so cute. You guys can Google him. He's so cute. So I messaged my friends that I went to grade school with and I'm still very good friends with. And I said, guys, I'm watching Voyage of the Mimi. (laughs) And they're like, where? What? And I was like, yeah, I'm watching this on YouTube. We're doing a Ben Affleck deep dive (laughs) this week on the podcast. What's funny about this is this was filmed in 1984 and Ben Affleck was becoming this huge star in 1997. 
and this huge heartthrob. And we watched Voyage of the Mimi around, it was grade seven, so it was 1997. And we were in a convenience store and I sent you guys this uh, photo of the magazine that I was talking about. But Ben Affleck, his big magazine cover was on the cover of GQ and he is shirtless Mm -hmm. and it says Big Ben on it. And I remember my friends and I, and we were young adolescent girls becoming women. And I remember us going, oh, my God, is C.T. Granville hot? Is that <laughs> is uh-huh. that him? And we just had these, like, conflicting sexual feelings <laughs> happening. So that is so funny. Yeah, where, like, Ben Affleck made us, you know, women, I guess, <laughs> in 1997. <laughs> but, yeah, The Voyage of the Mimi. If you're parents out there and you want an educational program... Little P- PBS miniseries from 1984 starring Ben Affleck, child actor. That's so, that's such a cute that's story. That's so fun. Yeah. That is great. <laughs> yeah. All right, Helen, what's up and coming for Big Ben? <laughs> I will not call him that. He has a lot of stuff up and coming, actually, now that he is, you know, also a director. He produces a lot of work. He acts a lot as well still so there's a film that is uh set to come out in 2021 called deep water yes i'm excited Mm -hmm. for this yeah this looks really good actually it's based off of a patricia highsmith novel Mm -hmm. uh here is the description courtesy of imdb a well-to-do husband who allows his wife to have affairs in order to avoid a divorce becomes a prime suspect in the disappearance of her lovers Mm -hmm. so this is ben affleck and anna de armas which oh god I am assuming this is how they met. Mm-hmm. Shooting this movie, and they are now a couple. They yes. Oh, are they a couple? couple? I would. Uh, are they? What? They're so under the radar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have no, no, none at all. Not calling the paparazzi at all to take photos of them. <laughs> Jesus. Um, I. But I. Yes, I will say this. I think that that sounds like a very intriguing premise. Also in 2021, the last yes. duel. Yes, I'm so uh, excited for this. Yeah, directed by Ridley Scott. King Charles VI declares that Knight Jean de Carouge settle his dispute with his squire by challenging him to a duel. This screenplay was partly written by Ben and Matt. Yes. Uh, starring Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and Jodie Comer. This looks very interesting. It, it was partway through filming when COVID hit and they had to delay filming in March. But that sounds super interesting to me. I'm excited for this. Ben Affleck's got a big year coming up. Yeah, Ben Affleck was also Batman, guys. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. But yes. I don't care. I've seen all the Justice League movies. Anyone can fight me on it. It's fine. We just we don't care. <laughs> Sorry, in focus, we're leaving it out. Yeah, we haven't even talked about it. <laughs> we haven't even talked about it. One more that I'm going to mention. This is in pre-production. Ghost Army. This is directed by Ben and starring Ben. The U.S. military forms a squadron of unconventional recruits during World War II to trick the German army into thinking there were outposts and bases where there were only mannequins, props, and inflatable tanks. Which actually sounds quite interesting. Yeah. So those are three very different things that we have up and coming for Ben, which I think is kind of exciting. And they all sound very promising, actually. Yeah. All right, guys. There's only one way to end this in focus, Ben Affleck. And that's playing a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. Edison, why don't you go first? What movie do you want to marry? I'm going to marry 
200 Cigarettes from 1999. Mm. Sinclair, you introduced me to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I really loved it. Honestly, I've never fancied Ben Affleck. At all, it's weird. He's I don't know how to say it other than he's just too straight for me. But I, who I do absolutely adore is Kate Hudson. And she yeah. is perfect in this film. And I would just marry her in a heartbeat. Yes, she's wonderful. Yeah. Helen? Um, <laughs> it's an odd choice, but it's my favorite movie by Ben Affleck. And it's going to be gone, girl. Uh, yeah, very dysfunctional marriage, yeah. yeah. But I just really love that movie, and so I'm going to marry it and see what happens. Yes. All right, Sinclair, what would you like to marry? 200 cigarettes. Oh, yay. Oh, my God. Yeah, I love this movie so much. This is just such a gem of a film. It's so great, and it's star-studded, and it's so much fun, and... I could just watch this over and over again. I never get tired of it. I think it's great. Love it. And I tell everybody to watch it. <laughs> too. <laughs> so. Okay, Edison, what film do you want to fuck? Okay, so again, Ben Affleck, not really my type. But I... Do you know what is my type? Sailors. So I will... <laughs> Don't I will, say Pearl Harbor, Edison. I will fuck Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow yes i will um this movie terrible uh not great uh, another michael bay less successful uh pairing with ben affleck but um oh my josh god josh in this. oh i love him i love Oof. him pilot sailors you know uniforms oh yes yes okay yes. okay okay i get it yeah for sure yeah. like i get yeah how about you helen mm-hmm. that's fair Blake Lively's so good in the town. She's so good in this movie. Yeah. It's one of her best roles. Yeah. She really put the work in. Like, she went there months in advance to really get a sense of that world and learn the accent and all the rest. Yeah. You can tell she was hungry for... Some cred. Like, real acting? Some cred. Yeah. 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 So that's my... That's my fuck. (laughs) What's your fuck, Sinclair? (laughs) Okay. Well, Edison, you might back me on this, but... Oh God! I'm gonna go with Mall Rats or Jay and Silent Bob. Anything Jay uses in. <laughs> I've oh, always had, so weird. I know. I've always had this guilty pleasure thing for Jay Muse. Truly, and Edison, <laughs> we've discussed this before. Jason, Mewes. I know, I know, I know. But it's like w- there's only one role that I find him attractive in. Ah, He's Jay like Mewes. straggly, I... long-haired, gangly. It's exactly your type. But in Perfect. Zach and Mary make a porno, I fancy them. And that's the only time. <laughs> yeah, oh so God. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> uh, okay, Edison, what film do you want to kill? I'm going to kill Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. I know. They're so... I just hated the Justice Honestly, League movies. I <sighs> what found this whole thing so disappointing. This film was so relentlessly cynical and bleak and dark. Not just dark like you literally can't see anything, but just dark in spirit. <laughs> um <laughs> I just want to kill it. I just feel like they deserve so much better. I didn't even mind Ben Affleck as Batman. I just think he deserved better. And right. I like Henry Cavill as Superman. I actually think he's perfect for Superman. And he is mm. incredibly hot. But mm. still deserved better than this. How about you, <laughs> Helen? 
Oh, there's actually so much to choose from. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of bad films <laughs> in yeah. Ben Affleck's filmography. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with Gigli. We've talked about this movie many times. Mm-hmm. Every, this is famously terrible. I'm probably going to kill it mainly for the weird sexuality flip that happens. So yeah. weird. Uh, yeah, Julie, goodbye. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? Okay, well, I'm going to kill Runner Runner because Justin Timberlake is in it. <laughs> I, I support that. I support that. <laughs> I've never even seen it. No, who don't need to. Don't need to. <laughs> Dead, gone. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie To Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our website, talkmovietomepodcast.com, and become a Patreon member. Next week's episode will be only available to Patreon members. Patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thanks.